good morning. I'm glad you're here because I'm here every Sunday, mostly. I even try to plan my uh, vacations around Sunday mornings because I just can't uh, be away from you guys. But uh, I'm glad the faithful are here today, like you. I'm glad you're here this morning. Well, anyway, I'm going to talk about some uh, friendship this morning. I've been assigned the uh, assignment of Jonathan and David, and we're going to be going through a bunch of scripture today. Uh, so kind of fasten your seatbelts. But I always like to start with a little personal story to kind of drive us in. So let's start there. You know, during my first class at Cedarville College, this would be back in 1991. So do the math. That was a long time ago for, for some of you. Some of you, that seems like, you know, just yesterday. Okay? Fred's smiling. Um, now, during my first class, it was 8 o'clock in the morning, all the way on the far side of campus. And, and for those of you who know me, I am not a morning person, just like Pastor Jack would attest to for himself and for me. We just aren't morning people. We kind of wind up as the day goes by, you know what I'm saying? And so 8 o'clock, I drag myself into music theory, and, and I'm assigned a seat next to this guy from New York State who looked just as lost as I was as a bunch of vocalists in a piano-driven theory class, Okay. For those of you who have no idea what music is about, it'd be like this. I look at notes and I sing them. I don't use my hands to do it. The guitar is this thing that I've picked up over the last several years that I just, I fake up here, okay? You guys don't know it, but the sound guys make me sound good. But music theory is based on everything surrounding the piano. So if you've never played the piano before, and you sit down and look at those keys... It's like trying to read Greek. It just looks like a bunch of things, and you're not quite sure what to do. And so Steve and I instantly formed this more like a panic friendship, you know? We just looked like a deer in the headlights. And, and I looked around the room, and there were several of us. And Steve had the whitest eyes. And so Steve and I looked at each other, and we knew we had to stick together. We had two years, two full years, six classes. I don't even know how we made it through, barely, like a C- minus through music theory. We just barely scraped by, but we made it through. And it didn't take us long to develop a deep friendship that, you know, spanned the course of these difficult classes. We joined choirs together. We did men's glee club together. We started that uh, with our choir director. We did service projects together uh, with that men's fraternity group that I talked about a while back. And we did overseas missions trips. We went to Ukraine and we went to uh, Czech Republic. And, and we had a lot of uh, good and interesting times together. And then finally, the last two years of college, that would be year four and five. I took the uh, fast way through college. Year four, uh, four and five. We both changed our majors our junior year. After suffering through all that music theory, we changed our majors. Anyway, so we had two more years together off campus. And I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but somewhere over that course of time, Steve and I's friendship just was like this, you know? One of those friendships where you could finish someone else's sentence, you know, you just can kind of look at the person and know what they're thinking. Ever have a friend like that? Well, Steve was one of those friends. He was always there for me, always, right at the right time. We tried out for these extremely selective uh, singing teams. And if you made it, you could actually pay off most of your college for the year. So this is really kind of an, a big deal. Well, Steve made it, and I didn't. The next year, Steve made it, and I didn't. The next year, Steve made it, and I didn't. And somehow, for three years before finally, by the grace of God, they allowed me in. I don't know why, but they did. Steve was able to set aside his celebration to come and find me and find me in my sorrow. Think about it. Here he was, 
with about 75 guys trying out for each spot. So each spot, there's 75 well-capable singers crying out for the spot. He gets it. I don't get my spot, but he's able to set aside his celebration to find me in my sorrow. Steve was always writing letters of encouragement to all his friends. He would find them in, like, in our post office box during lunch, and it always come at the right moment with the right scripture. Ever have a friend like that? They just knew what to say or text you or Facebook you. He had the ability to always see the positive in every situation. It didn't matter what situation we were in. It just always seemed like he could find the positive in it. He even saved my life once. We were driving down to Florida during a snowstorm uh, over spring break. And uh, we were driving someone else's car. The owner of the car was in the back sleeping. And we were doing a 24-hour bomb all the way down to Boca Raton. And, and we were driving down and... This salt truck comes past us, and we're going really slow in, in one lane, and the salt truck just throws up all that snow up onto our windshield. Ever been in an unfamiliar car and look for the wipers? Ever been in an unfamiliar car looking for the wipers with snow on your windshield? Ever been in a car in the winter looking for the wipers with snow on your windshield where the dome lights aren't working? Steve calmly just stayed the course. He started to slow down. And panicked, we were looking all over the dash. Finally, we found the, the thing, the wipers go, and he, he saved my life, you know? That would have been like, ah! you know? But Steve, thank God he was driving that morning. Steve was the type of friend I could always be authentic in front of. Ever have a friend like that? Someone that can always be you? You, you never had to put on any kind of fakeness. You, you could just tell him like it was. You know, Eric and I had this friendship. Usually Eric's just telling me what he thinks. And, you know, Eric can be authentic in front of me. We have that type of friendship. And those friends are great because you never have to fake. You can just be you. If you're having a down day, you have a down day. If you're having an up day, you have an up day. You just yourself. Now, after college, somehow, somehow we lost track of each other. It, it just kind of naturally happened. He went one way, I went another, and, and somehow we just kind of separated. These, these close-knit friends just kind of separated. And then the beauty of Facebook. I love that thing, you know, sometimes. I'm on Facebook, and all of a sudden, Steve Payton pops up. And I'm like, Steve Payton. All right, hey, where are you? And he's like, I'm in Grand Rapids. This is just three years ago. So I'm like, you're in Grand Rapids. I'm in Cadillac. Let's meet up for lunch. So we did. I drove my bug down there, and, and we had lunch together, and uh, we commiserated over ministry. He was in ministry doing music and, and uh, worship and uh, small groups, and we talked about stuff that we were going through and, and some things that we could do and some plans that we had for the future. And it was like we had never left each other's presence. Ever been like that? You can just pick it up where you left it off. Well, that's the type of friendship that Steve and I had. Have you ever had that tight-knit friendship? That one that impacted you positively? That friend that always seemed to be positive? Where you felt you could be yourself? A friend who always seemed to be there when you needed him the most? A friend that you could pick up where you left off and felt like you had very little time in between tasks? Someone who was willing to stick up for you? Have you ever had a friend like that? If you have, just nod your head. Now some of you... Some of you haven't had a friend like that. And you're longing for a friend like that. And you've been 
praying for a friend and hoping for a friend like that. And whether or not you've been blessed with a friendship like that. Have you ever wondered, I wonder what makes a good friend? Have you ever thought that? Like just sat down and gone, I wonder what it is about this person that makes him such a good friend. I've wondered that at times. You know, you just kind of gel with someone in your life. What is it about this person that we gel so completely? Now on the flip side, have you ever wondered what it is to be a good friend? Like some of the characteristics. Well, this morning we're going to look at five characteristics. I know normally I have one point. I maybe set the bar high last time. I had like 14 points, I believe. You know, and I usually have one. But this this day we're going to go through five different stories, five windows, uh, four different passages. And we're going to find five different characteristics. And I do have one point at the end, okay? So the five will lead us to the one, so just hang on, all right? Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at first this morning comes right after the passage that Pastor Jack talked about a few weeks ago where David has just slain the giant. So turn to 1 Samuel 19. Near the front of your Bibles. 1 Samuel 18, I mean. Sorry. 1 Samuel 18. This is just after David has killed the giant. And we bring us to this point in the story. And we'll look at this first window, the beginnings of this remarkable friendship between Jonathan, King Saul's son, and David. Look at verse 1. Now, it came when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Now, Scripture doesn't give us an age, an exact age, but we can kind of guesstimate, okay? Some would say they are, they're exactly the same age. They're not, because Jonathan has already had battles. Uh, he was, he was uh, David's age when, he came, when King Saul came into power. And so there's been some time in between there where he's grown up. So anywhere between 18 and 19 is where we think David is, okay? That's a good, good guess. Now, for Jonathan, it's a little bit wider of a range, okay? It's anywhere from 28 to 42, which is a pretty significant range. You know, there's no, we don't have the birth records, you know. They were born on year, you know, B.C., and, and here it is, and here's where they died. And sometimes we have pieces of it. So we're putting these pieces together to find this out. But at the lowest age difference, they're 10 years, right? And at the highest, they're 24. But even with that 10 or 24 years difference, instantly, the soul of Jonathan is knit. That means bonded to, chained to, interwoven to, linked to. David, and he loved him as himself. You know, Jonathan also was a valiant warrior who acted upon faith. There was one thing where there was a garrison up on a hill, and and Jonathan's walking with his armor bearer, and they're all alone, and they look up, and here's these Philistines, and and Jonathan says to his uh, uh, armor bearer, hey, let's go up and and kill these guys. It's a pretty brave move, because they're all by themselves climbing up a mountain. And so he says to his his, uh, armor bearer, hey, listen, if they tell us to come up, God has given us the victory. So he says, hey, you want to fight? And the guys say, come on up. And he looks at his guy and says, God is with us. So they climb up and kill a bunch of Philistines that day and return back heroes. So this is a man who knows how to act upon faith. And so when he sees David going out for his father Saul, Saul was the champion. You guys realize that? He was a head taller than everyone else. He was Israel's own giant. He should have been the one. And so David goes out for Saul, and Jonathan sees that bravery instantly. He's like, ah, I love 
you know? David's just full in the Lord. And Jonathan is instantly full to him. And Jonathan is instantly full. Now, let's continue in verse 3. Now, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul put him over men of war. That means he kind of made him a, a mini commander. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it's interesting, we see a unilateral uh, covenant being made between Jonathan and David. This means it was binding to only one party. Now, Jonathan covenants with David. Usually it's a, it's a two-way promise. I'll do this, you do this. It's like a covenant between two people. But this time it's just Jonathan saying, I want to be your friend. And he strips himself of his own royal robes, his, his sword, his own sword, the prince's sword, the prince's bow, the prince's belt. And now David is wearing the prince's gear. Think about this. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that David actually takes Jonathan's place as the next to be king. Jonathan doesn't quite understand what he's doing, but it is a picture of what is come, uh, to come ahead. And he strips himself of all these things and gives them to David. The first character trait we'll get to this morning of a good friend is this. They offer friendship with no strings attached. Ever have a friend like that? Just don't feel like you have to do anything to be their friend? So write that down because we're going to come back to those things. They're, they're in your points in your bulletin. There's no strings attached. There's no strings attached. David did nothing. He gave nothing besides who he was. And Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with David and sacrificed his own personal royal gear to David. Now, a ton happens between uh, 1 Samuel 18.5 and 1 Samuel 19.1. But we need to kind of have it in context. So let me just read you the highlights of what's going on between those two passages. Saul becomes completely jealous of David's rise. You know, as he's coming back into the city... Uh, the women start singing about, you know, Saul has killed thousands of people, but David hits tens of thousands. And, and they're like, you know, making this top ten hit about David. And everywhere Saul goes, it's like he's hearing this pop song in the background. And it's about David, not about him. And so the jealousy factor starts to rise up and rise up. And he gets angry and bitter and angrier and angrier. He attempts to kill David. By pinning him to a wall with a spear. He's just sitting there. David's playing music for him. An evil spirit comes over Saul. And Saul's like, ah! You know, just out of nowhere. And David, you know, and it's on the, you know, on the wall. And it's like, it's crazy. He just goes crazy on him. He puts David in front of a battle. Hoping that he would die in the heat of combat. Which, interestingly enough, is something David does later. Unfortunately, it was successful. Then he offers one daughter to David in marriage. He says, remember that daughter I told you that I'd give you if you fought Goliath? Well, here she is. So he gives this daughter to him, and, and before they can get married, Saul marries her off to another guy, hoping to incite jealousy or rage. I don't know what the, the purpose of that was, but he's messing with him now mentally. And then finally he says, okay, well, this daughter didn't work out, but how about, how about Michael? She's pretty, and she loves you. And so David's like, okay, that sounds great. And so he's, 
says to, to, to David, here, I've got a dangerous assignment for you. He actually does it like through a servant, so it doesn't sound like he's saying it. But he tells the servant, this is what you should tell him. You need to kill a hundred Philistines and bring back part of them to me as a show me that you did it. Well, a hundred people versus one, the odds are David might get injured and die. Well, David goes overboard. He does 200. He kills 200 men and brings back what Saul wants. And somehow, David miraculously, by God's grace, survives all these attacks. Which only makes Saul hate him more. Think about it. When someone that you're not really friends with, maybe you would call them and consider them an enemy, succeed. Does that make you feel good about them? Their success? Usually not. And so Saul, he's just enraged. He's enraged. And the situation comes to a boil in chapter 19, verse 1. Let's look there. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. He's kind of warning him. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning, because that's when he's going to strike. Stay in the secret place. So here's this hideout that I've got for you in this field. Now go stand there. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, where I have placed you, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I find anything out, I will tell you. Now Saul doesn't even try to hide his hatred for David, but Jonathan truly loved David and sought to protect him, as he did, as he promised that covenant relationship in 1 Samuel 18.3. Now, let's look at what he says to his father. Now, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Don't let the king sin against his servant David, since he's not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial for you. Can't you see how they've, they've worked out? For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought a great deliverance for all of Israel. And you saw it, Dad. You rejoiced that day. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And then Jonathan calls out for David, who was somewhere nearby, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence, as was formerly. But basically, he's, he's being restored back into his position in the royal court. Now, Jonathan reminds his father of all the benefits that, that, that Saul has seen because of David's service to him. And he faithfully, and, and without being asked to, faithfully defends David's reputation. He steps up for, for David and te- actually temporarily stops King Saul's attempts on David's life. And David is restored back to his position in the royal court. And that brings us to our second character trait of a good friend this morning. They have a willingness to stick their neck out for you. Ever have a friend like that? They're just willing to stick their neck out for you? There's no strings attached and they're willing to stick their neck out for you. They're quick to defend you and your reputation. And when people come to them and say, did you hear? And they're like, he would, what, never do that. That's the type of friend I want. That's the type of friend I hope I could be. Someone who's willing to stick their neck out. And the peace is short-lived, and Saul resumes his attempts on David's life. Again, he tries to kill David with a spear. And, you know, if I were David, anytime I saw a spear in, uh, in King Saul's hand, maybe I wouldn't be in the room. 
he tries to kill him while he sleeps in his bed. And David escapes, and so uh, Saul sends three messenger groups to him, assassins, okay, to talk, the scriptures say, which means talk, you know, that way, kill him. But on the way, they're overcome by the Spirit of God, and they actually start prophesying for God, and it just becomes chaos. And then Saul sends word, and Saul starts prophesying for God, and people are like, has he become a priest now? They just can't even tell. And in all this chaos, we come to our next picture. In verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled to Noah and Ramah and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What's my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it that you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing great or small without disclosing it to me. Jonathan was always in the king's presence. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, basically, to everyone else, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And then Jonathan says to David, Whatever you say, I will do it. Jonathan was sure that his father really meant his promise in the last chapter. But for us who have read through the story, we know Saul is a liar. And he means to kill David. And David knows that because of Jonathan's friendship to him, his dad isn't telling him the full truth. And he's keeping things from him. And so he comes up with a plan in verse 5. And so David says to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. Kind of in the cycles, they would have these feasts. And the new moon was one of those sacrificial feasts that they would have. And I have to sit and eat down with the king. But let me go that I might hide myself in the field. Perhaps this is the same field that Jonathan told him to go hide out in. Until the third evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, Well, David earnestly asked me to, that he, if he could leave and run to Bethlehem, his city. Because the yearly sacrifice there was for the whole family. And if he says, That's fine. That's good. Your servant's safe. But if he gets very angry, if he gets angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant relationship with the Lord. He reminds him of that promise. But if there's any sin in me, put me to death yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Then Jonathan said, far be it. For if... I indeed learned that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? He's basically saying, if, if I hear it, wouldn't I tell you? David, I'm your friend. Listen to me. You can trust me. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, come on, let's go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. So Jonathan, sensing David's need for reassurance, takes him aside says these very poignant words, very important words in verse 12 and following. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be my witness. When I have sound, sounded out or found out what my father uh, is thinking about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling towards David, shall I not send for you and make it known for you? So if it's a good answer, I'll send for you and get you. But if it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do to Jonathan also so much more if I don't tell you about it and send you away that you may go in safety. 
May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. See, the Lord was with the king of Israel. And Jonathan knows at this time, I'm sure they had a deep enough friendship where David has revealed to him what Samuel did with the anointing of the oil, making him the next king of Israel. And so Jonathan knows that wherever the spirit of the Lord is, that's where the leadership is. So he says to David in a very key and poignant words, he says, listen, the Lord's going to be with you as he was with my father. You will be safe. In verse 14, if I'm still alive, notice this. Jonathan already knows that the key to the throne is through him. Jonathan is naturally next in line, but David is the anointed next in line. And Jonathan knows that he needs to be removed so that David can be king. Can you imagine this conversation? If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. So Jonathan made David vow, too, this time, because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Now Jonathan, at this point, knows that David will be king, and he puts himself at David's mercy. And he says this, basically, When you take throne, would you please, please be kind to my family? And Jonathan makes a promise, a covenant with David again because of his love. Now, in the following verses, Jonathan works out this, a secret signal uh, with arrows. If the arrows go one way, it's one thing. If the arrows go the other, it's another uh, thing. Uh, one means safety, one means danger. And he follows through with David's plan for finding out by doing the feast thing. And we pick up the story back up in verse 27 is where we'll pick it up for the second night of the new moon sacrificial feast. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty again. And so Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse, that's David, not come to the meal, neither yesterday or today? And Jonathan said to Saul, David earnestly asked me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I found favor in your sight, Jonathan, please let me go away so that I might see my brothers. This is the reason why he hasn't come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger, read this, his anger burned against who? Jonathan. His anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Okay? I think we all know what that would be in today's context. One commentary actually had it in there, and as I'm reading through, I'm thinking what this is saying, and there it was. And I was like, whoa. Those are some strong words. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he has to die. story that David tells Jonathan to tell Saul, Saul goes nuts. And he just belittles him with the worst words you could possibly say to someone, especially your own son. 
ends his tirade with this. Don't you know that as long as David is around, you're not going to be king? Look at what Jonathan says in verse 32. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? It's obvious to Jonathan that David is completely innocent. And so he defends his friend. But look at what happens here. This time, Saul's ears were not listening, were they? Then Saul hurled his spear at him. Who's him? Jonathan this time. Again, if I saw a spear in in Saul's hands, as anybody witnessing any of these scenes, I wouldn't be in the room. I'd be like, it's one of those days. He has a spear. Let's not be here. Saul grabs the spear. And he must not be a really good spear thrower because he doesn't kill these people, right? So he throws the spear at Jonathan to kill him. And so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. I would put this as Ryan commentary. Duh. You know, now it's obvious that, that he wants to kill him. And then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food in the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. It's obvious to Jonathan now and everyone in the room that David was his enemy. And Saul would not stop until David was killed. And so the third character trait of this morning we encounter is this. Good friends willingly step aside and out of the limelight so that you can shine. Now Jonathan willingly sets aside his future kingship for David's kingship. He says, David is going to be king. And I'm going to step aside to let him have that. God has called him here. He has not called me. And so David, you will be king. And he willingly puts his life in danger to show that. Now, 1 Samuel 20, 35 through 40, these five verses show that Jonathan gives the signal with arrows to David that things were not good. And he sends his servant away so he could talk with David in private. And let's look at verse 41. And when the lad was gone, David arose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground. And he bowed three times, and they kissed each other. Now, there are a lot of what's going on with David and uh, Jonathan been a lot of things said about their relationship. But let me tell you this. This is not the gross kissing we would see of guys today. This is a very Middle Eastern type of thing. It'd be like me going up to Nate and saying, hey, buddy. Nate, hey. You know? Come on. We do that three-pat thing. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's their three-pat thing. It was a very natural thing for guys to kiss guys. When I went to Russia, you know, we were warned. They will kiss you on the mouth, you know, the Christians, the men. They will grab you and kiss you. And and so we were told to, you know, do the head-turning thing, and that was okay because we weren't used to that, you know. But sometimes they'd grab your ears and lock you in and bring you in for it, you know. So I have experienced the holy kiss several times. This is not one of those gross kissing things. This is just their custom. It was a custom to show. I, you're my buddy. You're my friend. And they kissed each other and wept. Now, here are these grown men. They both know the end is near. Okay? They, they are completely falling apart. They're, they're crying like babies. 
they're hugging. And, and scripture adds, and David wept more. Now, if this were a movie, okay, I always think of sometimes uh, Bible stories in, in movie form, you know, because that's just how my mind works sometimes. In the background, Michael W. Smith could probably be heard singing. You guys ready for this? Though it's hard to let you go, in the Father's hands we know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. You guys know it, right? They both knew this was the end. David was about to become a hunted fugitive. And David uh, and, and Jonathan knew that the road to David's kingship would be his death. This was the end, and they knew it. And so they wept bitterly. Here these grown men, these valiant warriors, they wept, they hugged, they kissed each other till their eyes were red, their noses were runny, and their beards were wet with tears. And the fourth character trait of a, uh, of a good friend that we encountered this morning is friends let you be yourself. They weren't judging each other for their displays of raw emotion, you know. Some guys see other guys crying and they're like, wimp, you know. Man, don't go to a Pixar movie with me, you know. Those guys have a way of making me cry. Within the first 10 minutes, I'm bawling like a baby, and my kids are like, are you okay, Dad? I'm like, he lost his wife, you know. But friends don't judge friends for showing emotion. They don't judge them. And Scripture only records one more of those meetings, and, and we're going to turn to that last one and find our last uh, character trait this morning. In 1 Samuel 23, 15, we'll skip a, a chapter in the middle of uh, chapter 23. 23, verse 15. We're going to look at the fourth window into their friendship. Now, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness at Ziphi at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish to encourage him in God. Now, David is hiding from Saul in one of these wilderness holdouts. that we And we later found out that Saul had up to 3,000 men looking for, for David. So, 3,000 verses 1 or the 50 guys he had with him, or the 500 still, was a very big group of people looking for you. Now, if you were living like that, you would feel pretty discouraged on a daily basis. You'd see dust rising towards you, and you'd be like, this is it. This is the end. This is how he lived. And so, Jonathan saw what his dad was doing, and he willingly went out to go find him. And he probably is feeling trapped between his loyalty to his father and his friendship with David, but... He goes out to find David anyway, and Scripture tells us he went out to encourage him in God. Loose translation, to remind him who was still in control. God is in control, not my father. Look at what he says to David in verse 17. Then he said to him, don't be afraid because the hand of, of Saul, my father, will not find you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. And so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. He's basically saying this. Don't be afraid. My father cannot kill you. You're God's anointed king. God chose you. I know this. He knows this. We all know it. You're going to be king. And what God says, he's going to do. And so be encouraged, David. And they make another covenant with each other. And then they go their separate ways. This brings us to our fifth and final character trait of a good friend. Good friends are quick to encourage you. They're quick to encourage you. They're quick to point us back to God, the one who's always in control. And they know what to say when we need it 
them most. Haven't you, like me, always wanted a friend like Jonathan? Haven't you always wanted a friend like this? One that offers friendship with no strings attached, who's willing to stick their necks out for you, who can step aside and out of the limelight so that you can shine, who lets you be yourself, who is quick to encourage you? Haven't you always wanted a friend like that? Haven't you? By a raise of hand, who said, I, I would love a friend like that? We'd be lying if we, we didn't, right? We all would love a friend like that. But you see, here's the point this morning, and I told you the five would lead to the one. As nice as it is to have a Jonathan in our lives, as nice as it is to have a friend with all those qualities like Jonathan has in his life, it's far more rewarding to be a friend like that. As nice as it is to have a Jonathan in our life, it's more rewarding. Actually, Scripture more mandates us to be a Jonathan to someone else. Let that sink in for a few moments. We live in a very selfish world, don't we? Most of our prayer requests are for us or for our situations. But how many of us are willing to strip aside what we want for someone else? And that's what being a Jonathan type of friend is. I'm sure most of us have longed for a Jonathan type of friend in our life, but have we ever sought to be one? Instead of sitting around wishing for a friend who would offer friendship with no strings attached, who's willing to stick their neck out, who would step aside out of the limelight so that you can shine, who would let you be yourself, who's quick to encourage you, instead of waiting around for someone like that, why don't we start being someone like that for someone else? Again, as it's nice to have a Jonathan in our life, it's far better to be a Jonathan for someone else. So let's look at those five character traits as we close down this morning. Look at those five character traits you have on the side of your paper. I want you to choose one of those character traits to work on this week. Right now. I want you to look at them and say, this is the one I'm going to work on today, tonight, when I get back on Facebook, when I call my friend, when I'm texting my friend. I'm going to work on this trait right now, and I want you to circle it. Okay? If you're sharing a piece of paper, just mentally circle the one your husband has or your wife has. All right? So circle it. Does everyone have one? Now, here's the crazy part. I'm actually going to have you tell someone right now. I want you to turn someone in your row and say, this is what I'm working on. I'm working on number one or five or whatever it is. Right now, turn to the person next to you or behind you or in front of you and tell them, this is what I'm working on right now. Now, for those of you who, this may be your first time in church, guess what? You already have a friend like this. His name is Jesus. If you've never met Jesus, he's the best friend on the whole entire planet. And he's always here for us. He died for us. He came to earth as God's son to die for us and rise again so that we could have friendship with God. He offers friendship with no strings attached. He's willingly stuck out his neck for us on the cross. He stepped aside out of the limelight so that we can shine. He lets us be ourselves, and he's quick to encourage us. So if you've not met my friend Jesus, I pray that you would this morning. Come find me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. Come find Pastor Jack or Pastor Andy. We'd love to chat. Let's pray and ask God to help us be the type of friend that Jonathan was for David, the type of friend Jesus is for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just grateful for your 
friendship in our life, and we're thankful for the story of Jonathan and David. Although Jonathan does most of the work, I'm sure this impacted David's further relationship with his friends. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that we would be impacted by your holy scriptures, by your holy word as we look at the story of Jonathan and David. May we take one of these five character traits on us this morning to be more like Jonathan, more like your son, or someone else. May we be the Jonathans this morning in your most precious name.